Good morning, church. Welcome all those who are hanging out with us online today. It's great to be here with you guys. Again, I'll say it again. Thank you for driving here. You got in a car, and I know that that's not easy nowadays, uh, but you're here. And, you know, we're going to take up a, a special offering for gas. Um, uh, at the end, and it'll, it'll be good. We'll just kind of pull our money so we can make sure we can continue to gather together. But what I want to do today before we really dive into where we're going to go is what we've done over the course of the last few weeks. We've just paused before we dive into God's word to quiet our hearts, to quiet our minds, to maybe forget about what happened in the minivan on the ride over and just pray. To ask God to speak to us, to, for many of you, have your really first time of, of, of prayer, maybe this day, maybe this week, maybe this month. And I don't want you to feel guilt or shame on that. I want you to know that, that your heavenly father loves you. And, and like a dad who longs for you to come back from summer camp is like, yes, you're here. Let's talk. Is in this moment, seeing you in the room going, okay, great. I can't wait to speak to you. I can't wait to hear what you need to say. I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this moment right here where we get a chance to talk. I've been looking forward to this moment all week long. So I wanna give you this opportunity before we dive into God's word to just quiet your soul before its maker. There's a lot of noise in the world. A lot of us, man, we get in a car, we get in a home, we go everywhere we go. And it's almost like we're terrified of silence. We put the radio on, we, if we're at home, even if we're vacuuming or doing something else, we've got a TV on with background noise. We fall asleep to a TV. And maybe just for a moment, we just kind of, stop all of the noise and hear what our loving heavenly father would speak into our hearts so in this moment this is where you ask him to speak this is where you ask him to show you more of who he is that you wouldn't come into a moment like this and just go out the same but we would come up to this place where we see who Jesus is and that nobody in the room would be able to leave exactly like we came in because we saw Jesus so quiet your souls before him. If you need to take a few good deep breaths, do that. And talk to your father. Almighty God, what a privilege it is to call you father. We come to you today longing to experience something real. We live in this world where, God, it seems like we don't know what to trust. We don't know who to trust. We don't know what source to believe. We look in our own mirrors and don't really even know who we are. And God, we come to this moment and, and we long for you to show us who you are. We long for you to show us who your son is. We long for you to reveal to us how there's this Holy Spirit that guides us into the revelation of all of that. Father, I know I'm speaking to a room where there are burdens, baggage, there are hurt. Where some people, maybe even in this room, have, have, have had one of the, the roughest, most painful, heart-wrenching weeks of their life. But the, the beautiful thing about the gospel, the, the beautiful thing about the story of your son is that for the person who had the great week and the person who had the horrible week, you minister to us both in these moments. And so I, I pray you bring healing. I, I pray you bring perspective. I pray you bring hope. 
Jesus, I pray that as as we gather around your word and the story of your glory, that it points to what's to come, that in a little while as we stand and sing, that it it reminds us and and shoots us forward into the day where we will be fully reconciled to you and and we'll stand on the shores of heaven together in unison, people of all different tribes, tongue, nationalities, skin colors, everything, and and praising you. And I I hope we see that even what we have in front of us here today is is a foretaste of what is to come. So we thank you, we thank you. Speak to us, we're listening now. We surrender all of our week to this point and this time right now. Let us be all the way here with you. In your name, amen. If you're like me, you've gone through different times in your life where you've struggled with God's will for your life. And if even somebody comes to you and says, hey, what, talk to me about God's will. Oftentimes we miss, initially, we just jump to kind of ourselves. well, what's God's will for me? And almost everybody has had that time in life. A lot of times it happens kind of in the 20s and 30s where you're really wrestling with, well, what is God's will in this circumstance or situation? We have kind of the bigger pictures of that where it's like, you know, do I get married or move to this country or move to this state or take this job or do this thing? And we wonder what in the world is God's will in this moment? Anybody else ever been there? Raise your hand. Like if you're like, hey, I've struggled with what's God's will. And it would be easy oftentimes if God would just go like, here's what it is. And the Bible was a little bit more specific on certain things. It would be easy. And then there's some of us, and I've probably been here more than I've been there, is certain things happen in your life and you are asking the big question of how in the world could this be in or fit in or be a part of God's will for my life? Because this, this doesn't make any sense. This is painful. This is broken. This is brutal in this moment. How could this be a part of his will? And we hit these moments and hit these times in life where we're asking us, ourselves, we're asking God, show me your will. And what it feels like is that his will is a mystery. And you hear people, and this is kind of the danger in being a a church person, is you come to church and you hear people talk about God's will. Like God tells them everything. Like, well, I woke up this morning, God told me to take frosted flakes over Fruit Loops, so I did that. And like, you're like, does he really, is that what he talked about? And you hear them tell their story and, and it's like, well, I was at the Piggly Wiggly in Jackson and I just saw him down the aisle and I knew he was God's will for me. And you're like, really, at Jackson? And all these things don't seem to line up and you think about how God maybe should be speaking to you and those things just don't mesh up and you feel like, man, I, I feel like you're tapped into this thing and I'm just still out here kind of like it's a mystery. And we get to the big things of our life and it feels like we're just kind of going on a women of prayer based off of what we think is the right thing to do. And maybe we figure out what is God's will and then we're going, okay, I'm just gonna take some time and focus on figuring this out and then I'm gonna figure out how that fits into the bigger picture of things. But what often happens is we never get the focus off of ourselves because you know what we really are into? Us. And so the the figure out God's will for your life thing happens and we go, okay, well, I'm gonna figure that out and then I'm gonna know how I fit into the grander scheme. I'm gonna know how I can serve at church. I'm gonna know how I can witness to people at my workplace, wherever that happens to be. I'm gonna know how I can um, glorify God in my marriage with whoever that happens to be. We're gonna figure all that out, but I gotta figure out what God's will for my life is right now. And what happens is we never really get to that place because we can never stop focusing on ourselves. And what Jesus does is I believe he comes in and says, you know how you wanna figure this out? The way you're going about it is exactly the opposite of how you can figure it out. You're trying to go, what's my individualized 
custom fit, tailor-made will for my life. Let me figure that out. And then I'll go hang out with God and his will for the rest of the world. And it's exactly the opposite, respectively, friends. And I've learned this the hard way. And some of you have too. A much better approach is to go, God, what is your grand will? What's your big purpose for this world? What's your big, big, big picture purpose for creating all of this? And then now that I'm looking at that, I'm doing my best and my best effort to really know your character, your will, how you sent your son, how you are guiding me by the Holy Spirit. As I look at this and begin to gain clarity on who you are and what you're doing and what your heartbeat is like, now I can begin to find my place based off of my unique idiosyncrasies and my unique gifting and hardwiring, how I fit into that plan. Because now I'm looking at it, not from me first, but from from the world first and the God of the created that world first. And then you begin to go, okay, now I'm figuring this out because now I understand the mystery of God's will. My will is not a mystery anymore. That's what we're gonna lean into today is how to determine how and how to unpack and how to discover the mystery of God's will. And maybe for your life, but if you don't even discover the mystery of God's will for your life, but you still discover the mystery of his will in general, you'll be much better off. So that's where we're gonna be going today. If you got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. Today, I'm happy to announce we're gonna set a record and get through three verses in the book of Ephesians. Hold your applause to the end, please. We're gonna start in verses, uh, we're gonna start in three, uh, just so you kind of get the whole context because we are gonna get a little bit of all the verses, but we're gonna specifically read uh, three through 10 right here to kind of, See where we're going today, but our passage for today is specifically verses seven, eight, nine, and 10. So Bible's out, let's get ready to dig in. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, a church that we have a lot in common. And he says these words, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. All right, so let's dive in. We're just gonna start in verse seven. So he's here. He says, first and foremost, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Last week, we made it really clear that redemption is what makes our adoption possible. That without redemption, we can't be children of this God who said, I want you to be in my family. I want to adopt you out of the slavery that you've, bound, you've been bound into. I'm going to redeem you out of that. I'm gonna do that through his blood. So last week we kind of defined redemption as the purchasing back of something or someone that had been lost by the payment of a ransom. It's that song that we, we love to sing and we're gonna start singing a little bit more. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch, a wretch like me and you, a wretch his treasure. That's ransom. So he redeemed us and, and here's how it happened. It happened through his blood. This is what paid the price to redeem and to get us out of slavery. 
But I want you to understand that it's not just through the blood that was shed, it's also through your faith in the blood. And hearken all the way back to the story of the Exodus, of the nation of Israel being set free from Pharaoh's rule. What they had to do was take the lamb, let it bleed, put the blood over the doorframe. And what they were doing in that is they were not just trying to you know, do this thing to practice this thing. They actually were putting faith in the blood that it would be what would enable them to be set free from Pharaoh. So it's not just the shed blood, but it's our faith in that shed blood that that is actually sufficient to cover the cost that I don't have to bleed anymore for my sins, that God is not punishing me, that if the punishment, the Bible says very clearly, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and that God is not looking to punish me anymore for my sins. There may be consequences. You can't rob a bank and not go to jail, but the punishment, the ultimate punishment happened on Calvary and it's not happening to you. So it's a punishment that brought us peace It brought us redemption. It was through his blood. And here's what it was for. It was for the forgiveness of our trespasses because every single person in here is guilty of sin and trespasses. Everybody has gone somewhere they shouldn't have gone, said something they shouldn't have said, thought something they should have thought, looked at something they shouldn't have looked at longer than they should have. And everybody has those sins and trespasses. And Jesus comes in on the scene and says, I'm going to redeem you out of that because I'm paying the price. And he doesn't just say, you're forgiven, you're off scot-free to pat us on the butt and say, go live a good life. What he does though, is he says, somebody has to pay because our God is a just God. And so he takes on our unrighteousness. He takes our punishment. His blood is shed to cover us because that was the only way that forgiveness could take place. And so we're forgiven. We stand before him without spot, blemish, holy, blameless. The gavel goes down and not guilty is the verdict for those in Christ. Now, all of this, this is a big word right here. All of this happened according to the riches of his grace. We're gonna spend a lot of time unpacking what in the world we're talking about here, the riches of his grace. So I wanna give you kind of a baseline definition, kind of understanding of grace, because a lot of times we can hear that word talked about in church. We hear it sung all over Christian radio. Well, what in the world is grace? I would define grace one way primarily, but I want you to understand that grace is kind of a twofold entity. Grace, first of all, is the unmerited favor of God. It's you not deserving this, it's undeserved, but it is undeserved favor of God poured out on you. It's important that we know too, the difference between grace and mercy, all right? You hear both of those words and sometimes we can kind of use them interchangeably, but they're both things that God does for us. Grace is God giving us something usually good that we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding something usually bad that we do deserve. So in, in God's grace, he gives us forgiveness. In God's mercy, he withholds the wrath. Make sense? Tracking so far? So so that's grace. And this God tells us that he is rich in this grace, which is an awesome way to think about it, that he is rich in this grace. It reminds me that grace is not just something like we oftentimes think as 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 just this thing that is our forgiveness. Because a lot of times we think about grace, we're like, grace is what set me free. Grace is what gave me forgiveness. By grace, I am saved. It's through my faith and what Jesus did, I'm actually forgiven. But it goes beyond that. See, grace is not just the thing that was sufficient to save you. Grace is also the thing that is sufficient to sustain you in life. 
Paul talks to the church in Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 12, nine, he says, he's talking about how God has humbled him and is, is trying to keep him humble. And he says, what God told me was that his grace was sufficient for me and that his power made perfect even in my weakness. And so what Paul is saying here is that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sustain you. So when it talks about this God who is rich in grace, it's the grace to parent teenagers. It's the grace to move your aging parent back in your home and not lose your mind. It's the grace to go through cancer diagnosis. It's the grace to be able to teach your kid how to drive. It's the grace to be able to sit through a little league baseball game. The grace to be able to come to church consistently when it maybe doesn't seem like a thing that's worth doing anymore. That's the grace to say, I'm gonna sustain you in the middle of this life. The grace that you just breathed in and out and the oxygen in this room is God supplying grace. And he says, this is what I am rich in and rich in it. Now look what he does with this rich grace. Cause it's awesome to know that you have a really got a rich God who has all this grace, which means that he has a lot to give of it. So let's see what he does. He's got this rich grace and verse eight tells us he lavishes that upon us, which that's awesome. That's really good to know. But he lavishly like just dumps it all out on us, pours that on us. He lavishes on us in all wisdom and insight. So let's camp out on that word lavish for a second. When you think of lavish, most of us, I mean, like I think of MTV Cribs. I think like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, maybe if you're a little older in the room. Like when I think about that, I think about this lavish thing. And I think a lot of times we don't really have that definition of God in his grace. We have more of this type of definition. Like imagine I said, hey, me and you, I, I met the richest guy in McDonough just because I know people and um, we're gonna go over to his house. It's actually not a house in McDonough because he's rich enough to afford a house somewhere else. And uh, he, he's got this house up in the mountains. It's up on the Blue Ridge, it overlooks this giant thing and he's gonna do dinner for us. It's gonna be this awesome thing, man. I want you to come. We're gonna go eat. We're gonna go eat at his house, okay? It's gonna be great. And, and we get in the car, we drive all the way up to the mountains. We get there and it's just beautiful. He's not there yet, but we're overlooking this giant mountain. It's amazing. There's a little waterfall babbling brook in the background. Hopefully you're beginning to see the scene. And then we just, we're kind of waiting on, on, on him to get there and all the things to go. And we're sitting there and then we kind of see him on a dirt bike. You know, he kind of makes his way up the mountain, you know, hits the kickstand down and comes in and then pulls out of his backpack, three Happy Meals and just sets them down in front of us and said, let's eat. It's not what you were expecting, right? Because if you know someone is rich, what are you expecting in turn? You're expecting a lavish spread of food. You're, you're expecting like three course meals. You're expecting appetizers, you know, at least mozzarella sticks, like you're expecting things. You're expecting things from France. You want a lavish spread of food because that's what you're expecting from somebody that's rich. When it comes to us and God's grace though, we're not like that. We mess up and we sin and we think God's just gonna give us a happy meal. He's just gonna give us barely enough to get over this one little thing. And he's not gonna do anything more good for me because of the bad that I've done. And he sees that. And my question is, where do you get that? Like what, what passage do you go to that said, God is only gonna give you just what you've earned? I, can't, I have a hard time finding that one. What I see over and over again is a God who lavishly pours his grace out and it actually becomes more defined as lavish, the more undeserving the recipient is. And if you're a God who wants to be known as a gracious and loving and lavish God, then the most best thing you could do is to pour down the most undeserving people like me and you. So he pours out this incredibly lavish grace upon us. And I believe he pours it out kind of like a river. Oftentimes in the Bible, you, you see grace and water connected. 
And if you know anything about water, if you've ever been to the mountains, you know, you, especially if you've gone out west where they have real mountains, you can see a, a glacier or, or an alpine lake and the snow melts off the top of the mountains. And what you see the water do is it actually flows all the way down and it gets to the lowest point. And it brings that fresh mountain water all the way into the lowest part. And that's what grace wants to do for all of us. That's a lavish grace. That's a lavish grace of God that says, I want to allow my grace to flow even to the deepest, potentially darkest places of your soul. I wanna bring this refreshing, lavish grace to every aspect of who you are. In the same way that water wants to find its low, wants to go to the lowest place, God's grace wants to go to the lowest place of your life as well. And my hope would be that you would stop putting up dams to block it from getting to those places. And you would allow that grace to go exactly where it needs to so that you can experience how lavish it really is, how amazing it really is. So he lavished this on us. And now I wanna show you um, a definition, kind of a working definition for lavish. I would say it means to go beyond the expected measure. Again, you, you have, <laughs> I think I've said this before. I think, I think our God really cares very little about what you expect him to do. <laughs> And so he would perfectly choose as he's inspiring by his Holy Spirit, Paul, to explain his grace. He would love to let us know that it in definition is designed to exceed expectations. So create them all you want, have them all you want. This grace is created by definition, hardwired into his grace is to go far beyond what you could ever imagine. Now, when we think lavish, like we talked about earlier, we think of MTV Cribs. We think, well, that God's gonna give me a, a very secure uh, finances. That God's gonna give me a, a great house and a good car. And he's gonna give me a nice spouse who brushes their teeth. Like he's gonna give me all of these things. That's, that's his lavish grace. We oftentimes, again, that's just kind of how we're hardwired. We think lavish grace is material blessings, but look what he lays it out as. He's lavished this grace upon us. Well, if you just led right there, that makes a really good beginnings of a health, wealth and prosperity message. He's lavished his grace on us. Look where it goes in all wisdom and insight. We started this series and one of the things that I hopefully made very clear to you is it is much easier to feel something than to learn something, but your feelings will lead to very temporary change. If you gain knowledge and understanding, what actually begins to happen is you can be transformed by that which is why our God says, I want to lavish my grace on you by knowledge and understanding so that when your mind begins to change, your life will begin to change. Everybody wants a quick fix to try to change their, their life and their aspects. Nobody wants to do the hard work to dig into God's word and to, to pour out in prayer so he can transform our mind. That's why Romans 12 two says, don't conform to the patterns of the world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he lavishes this grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Remember the story of King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. King David had brought the nation back to Israel into a time of prominence. He has a son, Solomon, and God shows up to Solomon and says, young man, you're about to take over the kingdom. Kind of goes this genie in the bottle moment and says, I'll give you whatever you ask for. What do you want? Now again, he had experienced some great things. He could have asked, I want to rule the entire known world. I wanna have a camel with wings. I mean, like, again, he's talking to God. He could've got whatever he wanted. What he asked for 
is wisdom and insight. And when you ask a father for the thing that he is most apt to give, do you know what he can't wait to do? Pour that out. And with that comes even more behind it. And so I don't know how you've been praying, but I would invite you to begin praying along these lines. God, give me wisdom and insight. God, help me to understand the deeper things of your world and this world that's going on around me. And again, you probably, God's not mad at you for praying that your light bill gets paid. He's not mad at you for, paying, for, paying for praying for other things. But what he's really after is, is give me the wisdom and the insight to be able to understand what's really happening here. That's what I long for most. So it's the wisdom and the insight making known to us, here's back where we started, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, again, we, we, read, we come to verses like this and we're like, oh, okay, now we're talking about end time stuff. I want that mystery of his will. When's he gonna come back? Is it gonna be on a Tuesday? Like we get to places like this and we hear these mystery words. And some of us, man, we're tenfold hat kind of people. And we start seeing mystery stuff in the Bible. We start getting fired up. We, you know, we start taking notes because we're all about the mystery. But most of the time, the mystery that we're really longing is, is solving the mysteries of our own life, not the bigger, grander mysteries of God and his will. And so he comes to this place and he says what he wants to make known to us and he lavishes this, lavishes this by grace and wisdom and knowledge and understanding is the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. I've told you guys before, one of the best things to do with the Bible is to take the Bible to help you interpret the Bible. He says this, a verse that kind of runs parallel to this, Colossians 2, back half of verse two and then verse three. Help us understand the mystery. Paul's talking to the church there in Colossae and he says, be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches. Again, you're even here with similar language. Paul had one message and he preached it over and over and over again. Reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Again, he doesn't tie riches to Beamers, Benz and Bentley. He ties riches to knowledge and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Now for all of us who are like, what's the mystery of God? <laughs> he gives us this super Sunday school answer, which is Christ. <laughs> I love that. He's just like, all right, you're gonna know the knowledge and the mystery of God's will. The mystery of God, which is Jesus. He's the mystery of God. What is the mystery, what is the mystery of God? It's Jesus. Now I love this next passage. And those of you who are, who are searching, you feel like there's this, and again, I, I'm speaking to, I know, I know deep inside the heart of many men is this longing that is searching and seeking after something and you, and you can't quite do it. Uh, you two, or is it you two or one of those bands? Um, they're not really that good or maybe they are, I don't know. But they wrote this song and it was called, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? Anybody ever been there? Like I, I still, I feel like there's something, there's something missing. I think they're writing that out of this reality of the human existence that in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, treasure is not gold, ruby, and silver. Treasure is wisdom and knowledge. And that's the mystery of God. Verse 10. So just to connect it to verse nine, it's the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So this God has a plan. And his mystery is gonna unfold in the plan for the fullness of time. This is what the whole thing was heading towards, the mystery, the goal, the end goal of the mystery that we're now beginning to discover and find out by the revelation of God's word was to unite all things. Red, yellow, black, and white, rich, poor, old, young, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So 
It was a lot. All right, everybody, when you walked in, you hopefully got a piece of paper. If you didn't have one of those, um, there, there's some back there in the back as well. This week, as I've been trying to figure out passages like this and, and how to take a church, not just through a series where we talk about a few random topical things, but how do we really like dive into God's word and like we did last week, lean into like specific words. Like last week we took the word redemption and we just picked apart every letter and phrase of redemption. I spent 40 minutes talking to you about what in the world redemption means. And this week we've kind of walked word by word through verses seven through 10. But in order to truly understand Ephesians, you have to look at it in the grander context of the gospel as a whole. And so what that means, and this is a practice for you as you're studying God's word, you have to become excellent at zooming in and then zooming out. And God's word, as you study it, is, is zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. If you just keep your face right here zoomed in, you're gonna miss the forest for the trees. And if you stay zoomed out, you're gonna leave so much meat on the bone. And so what I wanna do for us in our time here is to zoom out a little bit and see how what we've covered so far comes in and is really truly this whole entire mystery of God, all right? So if you don't have your Bible open, this would be a great time to open up. If you don't have a Bible app open, this would be a great time to do that because we're gonna journey through and I'm gonna hopefully try to see and show you some things because if you're anything like me, you read verses three through 10 and then on out, and what it feels like is Paul has this grenade of God's grace. He pulls a pin on it and lobs it into our life and shrapnel just flies everywhere. And then what we're kind of trying to do is put these pieces back together and it doesn't make logical order and sense because it's not in a narrative. It's not like this precedes this and this precedes this and this comes after this. And so what I'm trying to attempt to do in my feeble human mind is try to put some of what we've covered thus far in verses three through 10 in some sort of order so that you can truly understand the mystery of God. All right, so Bible's open, let's check this out. All right, so I would title all of this, what I'm getting ready to explain to you, this is the mystery of his will. And back where I started from the very beginning, if you can begin to get this tattooed to your heart, you will be less and less concerned with God's specific will for your life. And you will be free to love as he has created and called you to love because you will be less concerned with you. All right, so let's start here. First of all, verse three, praise be to the father. This is where Paul starts. It's gotta start there. There's a father. In order to be a father, what do you have to have? This is not a hard one, say it loud. Kids, children, yes. In order to be a father, you have to have kids, okay? So this father, he knows in his plan from the very beginning of time, he is going to be a father. Kids are going to be created. Now, as we start here, it is father, but it's also son and Holy Spirit. I'm just going off the verses that we have. That's what's there. We have this father and this father, he chose us before the world began, that we would be predestined for adoption, which again, this is wild to think about that there's this God who from the very beginning of time, before we were ever created, knew that we would have to be adopted and then created us, right? Because in order for us to be adopted, that would mean that we weren't necessarily part of his fold, that we were bound and in need of redemption and adoption. So he created us knowing there's gonna be a fall, that in our free will, we would definitely not choose him initially. And says, from the very beginning though, I actually get more glory if I'm a God who redeems and adopts than if I'm a God who creates robots. And so from the beginning, his whole plan was that they would be predestined to adoption as his kids. Next, he knows us as his kids. 
And verse seven makes it very clear that all of us as his kids have sin and trespasses. And this is audacious to a world that thinks that you are so special and that you're just a perfect person who hasn't figured things out yet. To, know, to go, no, no, actually you are sinful and, and actually you are unfixable. And you could read whatever books, take whatever courses you want, but you will still have your sins and trespasses. But the good news is, verse nine, this father, as a good father should, has a plan for his children, verse nine. And that plan is in Christ. That's this good father's plan. And that plan, verse seven, is forgiveness through blood. It's kind of twofold there. He has this plan that, that I will actually be able to take these messed up kids who broke the wheel, who broke the things, and I will find a way to forgive them so that they can be brought, brought back in. But what that's gonna mean is that's gonna cost the blood of my son. Now, sometimes you can get in this weird way of thinking that, that, that God saw the messed up things that were going on in human creation and was like, hey, I really wanna save them. And he had to kind of go knock on Jesus's door and kind of pitch this plan to him that you go down there and you save them. And it's gonna mean a lot. And that Jesus by this muster up of faith said, yes, dad, I'll go give my life for them so we can get them back. That's ridiculous. It was a father, the son, the spirit's plan from the very beginning to redeem and save our behinds. Nobody had to be talked into it. It was no like, hey, let me tell this to you. It was always there. It's always part of the plan. And the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity was in on the deal. And this plan involves shed blood of his son and for the joy set before him, all the way back here at the beginning of the world, for the joy set before him, he shed his blood for people like me and you to set us free from our sins, thus redeeming us, verse seven. So because of our redemption, we are now outside. Now we're out of the burden of our slavery to sin. We are set free from being children of wrath and being brought in to be children of God. We are redeemed. And because we're redeemed, because redemption happened, adoption has now happened. And now we're adopted as not just, you know, we're not just set free to be slaves, kind of do our own life. We're adopted back as children, which again, that was the plan for the very beginning. Now it's accomplished. We're adopted as children. And then verse four makes it really clear to us. We're not just kids who just kind of have to, you know, go to our room and, and every now and then we get some food kind of slid under the door. We're adopted as children to be holy and blameless before him because the holy and blameless older brother, Jesus, gave his holy and blameless life and took on our blameworthiness and our unholiness so that we can stand before that God, verse four. It's holy, blameless kids, no shame no guilt, no fear of the father's repercussions and punishment because we watch every bit of them be poured out on our older brother, Jesus on the cross. So now we stand before him and look at verse 10. This is what I want you to see. So that in the fullness of time, we would be united in him. Now track with me that my eyes are so open to this. I hope this opens your eyes as well. Look at verses four and five. Verse four and five, he says, from the beginning of time, from the found, before the foundation of the world. So before time ever began, what was God's whole plan and purpose? I want you to be united to me in my son. Fast forward all the way to verse 10. At the fullness of time, so at the beginning of time, I want you to be united in my son. At the end of time, at the fullness of time, what do I still want? The exact same thing I've always wanted from the very beginning of time. I wanna be your father. And so we get here at this place and then all the way back to verse three, he says, okay, now that you have gotten all of this, you now have even the life you have right here on planet earth, you're receiving every spiritual blessing that is in, in Christ Jesus. You'll experience it here. You'll experience it in fullness in heaven. So that now we sit here 
And what all of this is, is the lavish grace of God. When we go, okay, what are we talking about? The riches of his lavish grace. It's this. The lavish grace of God is that we, now, those who are in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing made available to us because we are united. And though time is not finished right now, we are still beginning the experience of the fullness of time because we can be before the Father, holy and blameless, adopted as kids, redeemed through blood as part of God's plan for our forgiveness and sins and trespasses because from the beginning of time, he predestined us to be our Father. That's the gospel, okay? So hopefully that's my way of piecing the grenade back together and presenting it to you the best that I can to say, this is the mystery of God's will. And what happens so many times is we get so caught up on and so consumed with, should I marry him? Should I start dating? Should I take this job? And we do not know this. And what I'm trying to pound into our brains and our souls and our hearts is that if you know the gospel, if you know the mystery of God's will, that he would lavish this grace on us, then that changes everything. And you become much and much less concerned with all the things that are going on in your life. You become more consumed by the gospel. Because Satan, guys, I'm telling you, he could care less if you start worshiping him. And his strategy on planet earth, you can go all the way back to the garden. It was not to get Adam and Eve to worship him. He didn't slide up and go, hey, I'm a really cool snake. You guys should bow down and worship me and I'll let you eat all these fruits and we'll have all sorts of good things. He didn't say that. He got them to follow their will. And so he knows if he can get you consumed with your will for your life, even if you couch it as, be careful Christians, even if you couch it as God's will, he wins. And that's why myriads of churches and myriads of Christians do incredibly awful and atrocious things in the name of God's will. When really it was theirs because they were consumed with what they wanted to do. And that's part of Satan's huge, imminent strategy on planet earth to say, I'll let you get focused on your will so that you miss out on the mystery of God's and who he truly is and what he's truly doing in and through this world. And I wrestled with going through this and Kendall did an amazing job uh, creating this whole graphic and I could have never done that. Um, she did an amazing job creating this and we were, we were just standing in my office kind of talking through this because I was trying to make sure, I felt like a, a crazy person, like someone, I felt like, a, you know, those, you see those scenes when it's like a, a murder mystery and the, the person who is way too consumed with something, they've got like the red strings drawn all over their whiteboards and like his stuff and people are like, you need to go see a psychiatrist. I felt like that's how I was with this passage this week. I'm going, how does this work? Um, but I feel like I figured it out. And then I kind of got this place where I, I wanna help you be able to go, well, how does this apply to my real life? Like I'm a plumber, I'm parenting kids. I'm trying to get kids through school. Like I'm trying to figure out what in the world we're gonna do for this entire summer. They've already eaten all the snacks. Well, like how does, how, how does this help? And, and, and like, hear me on this. Like I, I totally, and I'll do my best to try to be super practical and give you guys a lot of those things of like how to, like, and, and okay, this is the gospel, so what? But here's what I'm trying to say in this is what this means is that this is the mystery of God's will and that everything in our lives revolves and, and surfaces all on this, that it's all about Christ, that it's never been about anything else but Christ and it will always be about Christ. And so if you wanna be a great dad, what it means for us is that we fall on our faces and get this into our heart and then we reorient everything in our life around this. If I wanna be a great um, caretaker for my elderly family, then I fall on my face, I get this deep inside my heart and I reorient everything in my life around this. There's a, there's a passage that I'll, I'll end with today. 
is Colossians 1.16. It's talking about Jesus. It says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authority, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that's ever happened ever and ever will happen. It's all for Jesus. That's why when asked, what is the mystery of God? Paul is like, Jesus. And he, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together, you included. And he is the head of the body, the church, everybody included. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. That is in everything, he might be preeminent. I love this world. I could spend hours on hours talking about what that means. But here's what this means is you will never ever figure out what it means to be a good employee. If it's not being a good employee in Christ, you will never figure out what it means to be a good mom, a good father, a good church member. You will not figure out any of those things if it's not in Christ because all of the things, everything from this Apple remote to the carpet on this, to your hair, everything is finding its fullness and its fulfillment in Christ. It is all under him. It is all through him and it's all to him. And we just kind of got to be these people who kind of bow before the weight of the gospel and go, I'm going to reorient my life around that because that is what is supreme. And that's, that's, that's life. And so my, 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 challenge would be to put this in front of your face somewhere where it never goes away. Because what you will do in doing that is you will become someone who is rooted in the gospel. You're not rooted in determining whether or not you should take that job or not. You are not rooted in what somebody says about you or not. You're not rooted in the number of dollars in your bank account. You're not rooted in whether or not you're where you think you should be based on your life, based on your age. You're not rooted in any of that. You're rooted in the gospel that says that you have a father who redeemed you by the blood of his son and has made every spiritual blessing available to you and wants to pour that out on you, not in all those material things, but in the wisdom and the knowledge of who he is and what his son has done for you. And so I pray now as you get ready to receive communion, that you understand that our God did not just say, it's okay for me to just lavish this grace out on them in wisdom and understanding, but I'm also gonna lavish my grace out on them by the broken body of my son and his poured out blood on a cross. And then as he institutes this body and bride that is the church, he says, every time you gather together, get in your mind what my son did with his body to make this redemption possible. And as you taste of the wafer and as you drink of the cup, taste and see the lavish, rich grace of your father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. This is far too much for our finite minds to get all around. And I pray that through a prayer, through times of fasting, through times of meditation, that you would allow this to sink and saturate deep into our hearts. God, I have maybe allowed uh, some of this to spill in, but God, I know that there are things that you want to allow to soak and to marinate in the hearts of your children today. And so Father, I pray they keep themselves in the place where that marination can happen so that the gospel begins to radically reform and change their lives so that everything about them gets radically changed and reformed around this truth and this reality of who we are in you. We praise you. You're too good. We love you in your name.